We can be dream makers, nurturing, compassionate. Nosotros podemos ser más unidos. We can be anything. I'm Grant Oliphant. This is We Can Be. Today's guest lives and thrives at the vibrant intersection of social justice and art. Jaziri X is a hip-hop artist, activist, and co-founder of One Hood Media, a collection of socially conscious artists who address critical issues affecting people around the world. He is the first independent hip-hop artist to be awarded an honorary doctorate, which he received from Chicago Theological Seminary in 2016. The same award presented 50 years earlier to another social justice activist named Martin Luther King Jr. Jaziri has performed and spoken all over the continent, and I can tell you from experience that no one holds the attention of a crowd more than this man. He is, as his website says, freeing minds one rhyme at a time. I have been a bit in awe of your artistry for a while, and, and it's it. the... It's not just the artistry itself, but the way in which you apply it to social issues. And, mm -hmm. of course, right now is a moment where all of that's coming home, literally in terms Absolutely. of Pittsburgh. Thanks for being here. Thank you. And it seems like in the history of social justice movements that music always plays a central role. Absolutely. Uh, and we've had uh, Woody Guthrie and, mm -hmm. and John Lennon, yes. Nina Simone, Public Enemy. Yes. You're in that tradition? Does it feel to you like you're in that tradition? Does that bring a special responsibility? It does. And, and I, I'm, not only am I in that line, but I do have a responsibility to speak for, you know, what's happening right now. To be an artist, like Nina Simone said, that talks about the times. I've been blessed to have received mentorship from Harry Belafonte, whose mentor was Paul Robeson, who said, artists are the gatekeepers of truth. Mm. Now I take that with me when I go into the booth. I take that with me when I write music. Welcome to the whitest house. Slave souls haunt the halls when the light is out. They suck the blood of the poor and they wipe their mouth. The last gas of a world that is dying out. Welcome to the whitest house. Where every room is a tomb that they lie about. Where you can put your filthy feet on the finest couch. And for the right amount, you can even buy it out. White power, white pride, white privilege. Whites maintain all their rights when whites pillage. White lies, white tears, and white feelings. White supremacy in the White House, the whitest building, ironically, in the place they call Chocolate City. Now all you see is a vanilla sky. It has to resonate with me. In order for me to then write about it in a way that is authentic, because I'm in that tradition, even though realizing that like socially conscious music is now more popular than ever, I also want to be respectful of my own radical truth. It's beautifully stated. That song, The Whitest House, feels deeply authentic. Thank so you. I think you nailed it. You had a great line in a conversation that you and the Pittsburgh artist Vanessa German did at the First Amendment conference the Heinz Endowments co-sponsored a couple of weeks ago. You mentioned that you were often asked why you're what you referred to as dark in your work. The teachers came to me and they were primarily white women. And the first one came up to me and said, have you ever thought about like, how come you don't talk about love or you don't sing these like love songs? You ever talk about doing stuff? And I said, as soon as my people get justice, you're gonna have some love songs for me, you know what I'm saying? But those songs are love songs. They are. 
Those stories yeah. to these, these young men and these women that have been brutalized, they come from a place of love. And so love doesn't always look like what you think it is. You know right. what I'm saying? That's the bridge that people, I guess, particularly on the white side of the ledger, forget, right? True. That there is a, there's a goal here that you're trying to reach. We just we want to be treated equally. One of the reasons we started One Hood Media was because of the study that, you know, Heinz did. Yeah. Roughly 90% of the time that the local media covers black men, it was specifically around black men as crime. So now if you are in a position where you don't interact with black people on a daily basis, you're literally being programmed to think that we're criminals. So although there are black people in Pittsburgh doing amazing things and running amazing organizations and actually in our community stopping the violence, more than I could even name, those stories are often not told. Mm. And so when a police officer shoots a young black man and then we all go protest, the first thing that people in the white community say, well, why don't you do this when it's black on black crime? And I've been through probably 10 to 20 times more vigils, more rallies and more marches around community violence mm -hmm. than I have around police violence. But oftentimes those vigils and those rallies and those marches don't get covered. Right. Those stories Nobody aren't outside told. the community is paying attention to that. Exactly. And right. so then it creates this false narrative. And that's, like I said, one of the reasons we started One Hood Media, so we could put young people in the position, particularly young people of color, to tell our own stories. And what we want to do is just create an environment where we affirm the value and self-worth of youth of color doing what they love to do, using their art to create social change. And that's the genius of One Hood, is that you take young people and you give them art, or you help them discover the artist within themselves, Absolutely. and then you give them social media and discover, although they're probably teaching you as much as True. you're teaching them at True. this point, and you combine that into the capacity for social change. Are young people responsive to that combination? A hundred percent. You know, the, the term now is woke. I would argue that young people now are more woke than I've ever seen. One of our teaching artists in One Hood, uh, live from the city, did a song for Antoine. We gotta stand strong, do it for Antoine Because a rose from the concrete never lasts long No more hashtags, no more sad songs Time for action, this is Babylon Let your light shine in times of darkness We united through these hardships In these comments, racist starship So call white allies unresponsive Can't you see, they'll stop at nothing to silence us That's why they at the protest with ARs and silences Law enforcement, raise the crime rate, then get a pension. I guess crime pays. Michael Roosevelt needs indicted. We saw the video. You can't hide it. We've decided to take over all the street corners. And may Allah bless us because police got us under pressure. Represent, represent. Let's now go. more than ever, we're finding artists that are coming to One Hood already with the mindset of that they want to use their art to speak more about what's happening in their communities, more about what's happening in this time, mm -hmm. and connected with movements that are creating real social change. So many of our artists were, were on the front line of these protests and then have been creating music and videos that could also be the soundtrack of what's happening right now. So you've described yourself as a hip-hop artist and an activist, and I'm wondering what your first memory of that blend of hip-hop and activism was for you when you first realized that the intersection of those two things was something you wanted to explore? The first memory was, you know, I'm originally from the south side of Chicago. 
moving to the Pittsburgh area, I moved from the south side of Chicago to Monroeville. So I, I went from a 100% black experience. My school I went to was all the students were black to Gateway, which was maybe, I think at that time, maybe 98% white. That was a very difficult moment for me. You know, my first reaction to the racism I faced was violence. Mm. And, you know, my mother made it very clear (laughs) that there would be no more suspensions. My mother really stressed education, and so I had to figure a way to deal with the situation around me. And that's when I started activism at Gateway. We started a club for students of color, our cultures. We petitioned the school and got a black history class taught. And at the same time, I had begun to do hip-hop. My best friend at the time got some turntables for Christmas, and he said, you know, I'm going to be the DJ. I want you to be a rapper. And I started to write about what I was currently experiencing. You know, for me, it was therapeutic being able to, like, share my feelings and what I was going through and what I was experiencing and kind of what I was reading and what I was being influenced by. And so that was that first combination of doing music about, you know, this activism that I was participating in at Gateway High School. You've described that moment of arriving in Monroeville as a cold slap in the face of racism. Yes. What sort of things did you encounter? I always tell this story, our our first time going to Monroeville Mall, you know, like in Monroeville, the mall was the place to go, leaving Monroeville Mall and being called nigger. And having never had that experience before, it was a drunk white guy and it's me, my mother and my sister and thinking like, you know, I'm maybe 14 years old, I'm thinking like, do I protect my family? Do I approach this guy? What's going on? And so just this mix of emotion of like fear and uncertainty and, you know, how to respond in this situation. And so, you know, my mother raised me socially conscious. She gave me the name Jasiri, which is a Swahili name that means brave warrior. And she raised me with Dr. King and Malcolm X and Asada Shakur and these folks. But I didn't really understand it. In Chicago, it was like, okay, mom. And it wasn't until I got to Monroeville that I was like, oh, okay. (laughs) Like, this is what she meant about, you know, what our folks were going through and how we can respond in a way that could begin to make changes on the environment that we're in. And so that experience is what I feel like led me to the current path. I was struck when I moved to Pittsburgh from Washington, D.C., how... Often I heard the sentiment expressed by white folks that this isn't a racist town. This is, uh, you know, we're a nice town. And I'm curious, in your experience of that when you came here and what you've seen ever since, is that unique to this community or is that a white thing that you observe that folks who are in a position where they're not experiencing the racism just sort of assume that life is good for everyone? Yeah, I think, I mean, that's privilege. You know, for me, when I, you know, um, left the University of Maryland, University of Pittsburgh and went into finance, my card read J. Period Smith because I knew going into finance that if I use my name, Jasiri, hmm. automatically, like somebody might see that and think that's somebody foreign or I don't understand that and not call me back. So I think these are some of the things that people of color go through that white people don't really understand. One of the principal things is how we deal with the police. And, you know, oftentimes when we engage the police, we get pulled over more and we get treated worse. You know, if you interact with the police and you get pulled over and it's cordial, you think that like, well, you know, it must be not because of color. It must be that person doing something wrong or that person's a criminal or, you know, you kind of have all of these different ideas around it. So I think 
some of the videotaping and social media is actually showing people now more of the real story of what it is to be a person of color and not just Pittsburgh, but anywhere. Black bodies swinging in the southern breeze. Strange fruit hanging from the poplar tree. I saw what was happening with a lot of these uh, killings of, of young uh, black people as a continuation of the lynchings that were happening in the 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s. And I wanted to make that connection. And so I say strange fruit, but now they cock it, aim, shoot. What's up? Peace, peace. <laughs> they say, just say react, you preach too much. I'm like, black people, we asleep too much. A racist president, so he doesn't speak for us. Another black body lynch is not unique to us. You've actually called out what you view as superficial activism, so people who are maybe for the best of intentions but wanting to be activists but not, not really and not really cutting the surface. Lyrics in your song Strange Fruit. It includes the lines, they give reality TV shows to preachers and we think activism is Facebook and tweeting yes. and you're, you're sort of dismissive of that superficial attempt to weigh in but not really get involved and I'm I'm curious what was going on for you when you wrote those lines and what do they mean to you now yeah that was um, a time where it had been a lot of police shootings I want to say that was 2013 I know we just want to see a twerk and then back it up mm. But that's what happens when we make our rappers, leaders, and the most intelligent just want to be on TV featured, and they get reality TV shows to preachers, and we think activism is Facebooking and tweeting. 12 years of slavery, still fighting for freedom. Just look at the headlines, seeing us believing. Strange fruit, but now they cock and aim, shoot, yeah. Strange fruit, but now they cock and aim, shoot, yeah. Strange fruit, but now they cock and aim, shoot, yeah. The end result is just another slain youth, yeah. Renisha McBride, she got a name too. And Jonathan Farrelly got a name too. Kendrick Johnson, he got a name too. Ayanna Jones, she got a name too. Sandra Bland, she got a name too. Trayvon Martin, he got a name too. Oscar Grant, he got a name too. Old Sterling, he got a name too. Philando Castile, he got a name too. Michael Brown, he got a name too. Antoine Rose, he got a name too. Pray to God that we'll never name you. A lot of times for me, I get angry at these situations and so it's really like, how can I deal with these situations, address these situations in a way that is productive, but also that I can kind of let these feelings out. Um, so for me, it was enough's enough. I'm going to write about it. What I was seeing at the time was the individuals that have these platforms, whether they be rappers, whether they be you know preachers on TV, I didn't really see them using their platforms to really call out the injustices that we see every day. And I would see sometimes folks tweeting something or putting it on Facebook, and that was as far as they would go, flash four or five years later. Particularly social media, I think there's a place for people that do that, you know, because now people have actually built social media platforms off of sharing information about, you know, police brutality, you know, protests, identifying white supremacists. And so I do think that there's a place for that. And I've seen 
more artists, more athletes, more people that have those platforms really speaking out and calling out the injustices that they see. And then, of course, Trump's election put more pressure on folks to understand, like, no, if I have a platform and I have a voice and I see white supremacy from the biggest office in the United States, I need to do something and say something now. So I remember seeing Eminem at the BET Awards. He did a freestyle about Donald Trump, which I thought was important for Eminem to do, particularly as a white artist, to kind of draw a line and say, if you're a fan of mine and support Donald Trump, I don't want you as a fan. So you actually do see us as a society moving beyond clicktivism at this point, that sort of passive engagement that you were so critical of and strange fruit? Absolutely. I always joke with people, like, if you kind of listen to my discography, you'd be, like, really depressed. You'd be like, man, the world is really messed up. But I'm, I'm actually an optimist. Even in these darkest moments, I find, you know, those silver linings. And so I see kind of out of the dark moment when Trump was elected, we've seen more activism and more people involved and more people speaking out. Even this weekend, we had people protesting to to get justice for Antoine Rose. Then you had people coming together downtown in support of undocumented brothers and sisters. The union folks were out there because it was just a, a blow to the unions. What all of this tragedy is doing is bringing together communities in a cross-section like we've never seen. Sunday, it was a faith rally for Antoine Rose. Church was in the street, and it was all of these different pastors and faith communities of all different races, all different ethnicities, all different genders and sexual orientations coming together, calling for peace, calling for justice. These tragedies are actually bringing folks together in a way that I've never seen. shooting at him no i'm recording this why are they shooting they all they did was run and they're shooting at them the medical examiner submitted various reports antoine rose was hit three times he was hit in the side of the face in the cheek the bullet exits through the nasal cavity He's also hit in the right elbow from the rear. That's a through and through wound. He's hit in the mid back and that slug was recovered in his chest. That's the fatal shot. That nine millimeter slug matches Rossfeld's service weapon. We just want justice for my brother at the end of the day because my mom, she lost her only son. I lost my brother and my best friend. He did not deserve that. Antoine was kind. He was loving. Antoine would give you the shirt off his back. Antoine volunteered not because he had to, but because he wanted to. He wrote a poem in his sophomore year saying, I'm not what you think. I am confused and afraid. I wonder what path I will take. I hear there's only two ways out. I see mothers bury their sons. I want my mom to never feel that pain. Let's talk about what your reaction was when you heard what happened. Well, I still haven't watched the video. There was a point when it came to the videos of black people being killed by the police that I 
felt I couldn't watch anymore. Emotionally, it takes a toll to see, you know, death played out over and over again. And I didn't want to become desensitized to, you know, black death. But also knowing that, you know, I wanted to do something, I wanted to be present. And so when I got a Facebook message that people said, you know, we're meeting at East Pittsburgh's police station the, the next day, Wednesday the 20th, you know, I wanted to be present. So just went out there and was a member of the community. This morning, Pittsburgh on edge. We do this for Edgewater. Protesters. This cannot just go away. There has to be something done. We have to take a stand. And I just don't understand why. Why has it got to keep happening? The emphasis of the protest was we need this officer charged. From there, you know, I kind of took a role of organizer mm-hmm. and I wanted to make sure that there was space for the younger activists to lead. I've been doing this for about 12 years. I was in Ferguson. I, you know, I've worked with Trayvon Martin's family. I've worked with Oscar Grant's family. So I felt it put me in a position because I've seen these uh, struggles take place all over the country to kind of more so be somebody that can guide and help, but wanting to center those younger voices. And from the day we started until now, it's been peaceful. They've been respectful, uh, they've been orderly, and all we want to see is justice in this case. All we want to see is relief coming to Antoine Rose's family and his friends. I wish his funeral was live streaming broadcast to the world. It was one of the most beautiful ceremonies I've ever seen to see his friends speak so powerfully about his character, to see his whole AP English class come up and the teacher to talk about what he meant, this gifted student who skied and snowboarded and played the saxophone and all of these things that were not reported in the media. And the media instead chose to put a false story about Antoine out that there was video of him doing the drive-by. He had gun residue on his hands. And so this is kind of the work we began to work on. We also circulated a petition nationally with the help of an organization called Color of Change to put pressure on DA Zapala. And I'm, I'm glad that he did what he did and charged the officer, although now to see the officer walk out of court, not have to pay any bail right. on a homicide is indefensible. These are the moments that I would like people to look at and see the obvious bias in the system and that that's something that not only hurts people of color in Pittsburgh, but that really hurts all of us because it shows the corruption in this system. Mm -hmm. And if the system is corrupt for us now, today, it'll be corrupt for you in the future. And we should want a system that's equitable and just and fair for everybody. I can't improve on that statement. I think that's exactly what we all should want. It gets lost in the reporting of these stories. And thank you for calling out the media's role in how some members of the media reported the story initially, because I think that was shameful. The notion that he was somehow mixed up in, you know, somehow responsible for his own death, which is one of the things we hear a lot after these shootings, is just unpardonable. It's often framed that way, particularly when the suspect is black. It's framed as the responsibility is on the 17-year-old kid and not the 30-year-old 
officer who was supposed to be trained. And then when we look into the officer's background, we find out that he was fired for his previous job for not only brutality, but actually making up allegations against two University of Pittsburgh students who are now suing him because of, of that incident. This is why I feel like making sure our stories are told are so important. If we don't correct these things, then we'll continue to perpetuate a narrative that's untrue, a narrative about black people that's untrue, a narrative about immigrants that's untrue, a narrative about Muslims that's untrue. I mean, we continue to take these small percentages and perpetuate this as this is affecting the entire community. And then if we turn around and say, well, you know, white people are racist, it's like, well, hey, not me. Right. You know, I need to say this, that it's it's easy to blame this on the media. Yes. But as a white person, I see it as a behavior that is all too common True. among us as white folk. Yeah. And something I wrote immediately after Antoine Rose's death, I referred to this as white whispers. And I hate that I can predict, that we can predict, that you can predict Absolutely. that they'll come. And what they look like or sound like is statements along the line of, he shouldn't have been in that car. Right. Why was he interacting with the police? There were guns present. Things that, by the way, in similar circumstances for white people, don't end up in somebody being killed Absolutely, most of the man. time. How do you get over your anger about that and find a way to talk about it productively? I have that responsibility as somebody that is you know, looked at as a leader and organizer in the community that I don't want to be responsible for leading folks in a direction that could cause further harm to my community. So that personal anger, you know, I, I, I deal with, you know, in my own personal and private time, I make sure that, you know, my motivation is correct. The first time I spoke after what happened to Antoine, the first thing I said is we have to center the family. As hurt, as angry as I am, I can only imagine how Antoine's mother and father feel, how his family feels. So I would not want to be responsible for doing anything that would put further harm on the family. The last thing I said was let's use this moment to put aside maybe petty differences or arguments that we might have person to person, organization to organization, and build this collective unity. For me, moments like these, they're moments. If you go to Ferguson right now, they're not protesting anymore. You know, they're not protesting anymore in, in Sanford, Florida. There'll be a time where we won't be protesting anymore in Pittsburgh. And so what can we do now to take this outrage and movement around Antoine and ultimately have it lead to a more productive, equitable, just, and vibrant city of Pittsburgh? How do you talk with your own kids about this? You know, that's the most difficult. I mean, we've, we've had of course, kind of that talk and that conversation like my mom had with me. You know, when I get pulled over by the police, first thing I do is I turn my phone on record and set it somewhere. I make sure that my both my hands are on the wheel and visible. I make sure that if I'm going into the glove box or going into my pocket, letting the officer know this is what I'm going to do. But also understanding that, you know, you don't want your children to walk through the world afraid. You want them to be aware mm. and to be aware that if you see police, 
this is a situation that could happen. So you want to make sure that you're comply as much as you can. You know, I remember doing a panel with Trayvon's mother, Sabrina, and her son, Javaris, was there. She said, I don't care what happens. I want my son to be in 100% compliance. She said, I know to some of you activists in the room, it might not sound revolutionary. But she said, I can't lose another son. I mm-hmm. lost one. I can't lose another one. And I think any parent would feel the same way. Like, look, we can do the activist stuff later. If you feel like you're in the wrong, we can deal with the lawyers and stuff. We'll handle that. You comply. You survive. I've heard people in the black community refer to that as the talk. Oh, absolutely. And, it, and it's sad that, that we still in 2018 have to have that. I don't know how we get to a place with the police where that's acknowledged. I would like to see a day where the police come out and say, you know what, this shouldn't have happened. This was against our protocol. This officer is going to be fired. This officer is going to be charged. And we're going to work with the community to make sure that this doesn't happen again. That doesn't make them weak. We know that policing is a difficult job. We know that oftentimes you're seeing people in their worst times of their lives. We understand that. We meet with the police and there's no care. There's no sympathy. There's no empathy. It's like, well, damn, like, how can we then get to a point where we see each other's humanity? Both sides have to be willing to say, we want the best for our city, we want the best for our community, we want the best for our children. And I'm not sure if we've arrived at that point yet, but I hope, I hope we get to that point soon. Fifty-five years ago, at a eulogy for the poet Robert Frost, President John F. Kennedy said, we must never forget that art is not a form of propaganda, it is a form of truth. In a new age of propaganda, Jaziri is using his art to share truth and his platform to bring light to the dark reality of injustice in our communities. At a time when those in power are creating false narratives about those who do not look or speak like them, using the tools of falsehood to turn us against one another, the truthful art of Jaziri X is a powerful and much needed voice for good. His art raises consciousness and spurs those who listen to action and our community, our world, is a more hopeful place because of it.